Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of the Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by the eminent biographer Hilary Sperling, and actually I should say a former occupant of my chair at the Spec. Hilary's new book is Anthony Pole, a biography of the author of A Dance of the Music of Time. Hilary, welcome. Let's start with, I mean, you know, that's what Anthony Pole is kind of known for. You know, it's almost sort of now, I guess, almost the only thing he's sort of really known for. What's the importance of dance? What's his, I mean, and how much do you think it's read now? The second question I can't really answer. You'd have to ask the publishers. My feeling is that a younger generation is reading it. At least that's the kind of response I get and finding it as funny as I did when I was young. But among my own generation, there is a terrific anti-pole bias, starting with, why, for heaven's sake, does he call himself Pole? Well, if you're born Pole and your parents tell you that's the way the name is pronounced, and at school that's the way... I mean, who are you to say in your cradle? I don't really like this pronunciation. That's the kind of absolutely absurd, but very typical example of the kind of um, disparagement that Pearl has come in for, which I have never really understood. Didn't he make a joke about old Cole? <laughs> <I mean, I laughs> he yeah, could have, yeah. couldn't he? Yes. Oh, well, I think it's very much a generation thing, and I've noticed it particularly in my reviews for this book. All the ones by older people are still very much tainted by this prejudice, however much they try to get over it. It's always present, always there. The younger generation just roar with laughter and find him an exceedingly funny writer, which indeed he is. You asked me about the importance, I mean the actual why, I suppose, the dance the music of time should be read. Firstly, because I don't think there's any comparable survey of life in the middle, what, 50 years of the 20th century. For the last century... Anyone who wants to read about it will not find a better survey, a more representative account than in Pearl's books. A second uh, criticism constantly made of Pearl is that he was a snob and that he only wrote about toffs. That is absolutely ludicrous. Anyone who has read even even a part of a volume of The Dance of the Music of Time will know it is not about toffs. It covers the entire social spectrum and does it brilliantly, I think. But it's rather more than that. I mean, people compare him to Proust. I I find it hard to think of two more different writers, but they did both write a mighty novel in 12 volumes. They are both very funny. This is hard for English readers brought up on the traditional English translation of Proust to believe, but in French he is actually very funny, at least I think he is. Not obviously in the same way as Pearl, who is an absolutely straight down the middle of the road English almost the, the Shakespearean tradition of English comedy, you know, and if there are many pages on which you laugh aloud. Many other pages on which it is just, it's very funny but not laugh aloud funny. He's an extremely deeply ironic writer. But I think his passion is simply watching what he called human beings behaving. It's not a judgmental book. I mean that's that's actually quite striking. He, he makes no judgment of anyone whatsoever. What he's interested in is observing, and to some extent understanding, as far as anyone human beings capable of that, of how other people behave as they do. And certainly he records it with a, a lightness of touch and at the same time a sureness of touch that I think is very, very rare, even in the English novel. Reviewing your book for these pages, Philip Hensher said one, one of the kind of striking things as he saw it was that it was it was a sort of exterior treatment of the characters that Pole you know, went a different way from, mm. say, someone like Virginia Woolf. Mm. Do you see that as a kind of... I thought he put that brilliantly. 
I mean, I knew it in my bones, so to speak, but I'd never seen it put as neatly as Philip Henshaw put it in your pages. And what he said is that it's very, very striking how differently he deals with people from most novelists who will, on the whole, enter people's heads, tell you what they're thinking, especially with a first-person narrative, you get a lot of that. But in Pohl's case, he describes what they do, how they do, what they sound like, what they look like, their body language, one might say, and from that, the person is present in the reader's mind in exactly the way that real people are present in our lives. We may think we know what they're thinking, but who can be sure? You know, it's a very unusual way, I think, of describing people and very powerful as used by Paul. I mean, there's something you've mentioned, Shakespeare. This is kind of Paul's, not exemplars, but the people he's interested in, the people he connects with. He wrote a biography of John Aubrey, and he was also very interested, you know, the book takes its title from a painting who sounds dance the music of time he's he's interested in painting as well what do you think he finds in Aubrey what does he find in paintings I think he had a very strong visual imagination and when he was young you know schoolboy he was at one point very undecided as to whether to become a graphic artist or I don't think actually become a novelist it occurred to him at that point but he was very strongly drawn towards that and much encouraged by his art master, who certainly thought he could have made a graphic artist. So there's always that string to his bow. It means he's very observant, not only of people, but of course of of places, of uh, painters especially, very good on painters. And, oh, you asked me about Aubrey. I think Pearl wrote a biography of him because he wanted a sort of bridge after the war, after five years of complete disruption, when, of course, he'd been in the army and later in the war office. All that business, and especially the dreadful last year of the war because Pearl was working in liaison with Eastern Europe so all the people whom he had worked for representing their governments in exile in London were going back actually to be shot, hanged thrown into prison. It was a traumatic thing for him and he needed, he couldn't plunge straight into writing a novel so he wrote a biography and he absolutely hated it he really loathed writing biography and although I think he's a genius as a novelist, I must say doesn't have a biographical bone in his body. But the reason he wrote about Aubrey, it's because Aubrey like him, John Aubrey who's famous for his brief lives which are very very short jottings about his contemporaries. Many of them became extremely well known later some of them didn't but they're brilliant. Again, now you mention it, using rather similar method to Pearl. They're brilliant little capsules of people, sometimes only one sentence or two, sometimes five pages. Aubrey was, in that respect, extremely like Pearl. He was an only child, he was a very lonely child, and made up for it later when he, when he started meeting people by be- being all his life absolutely fascinated by them. They were both first-class observers. I think that's why he chose Aubrey, but I think biography... Well, he certainly said biography was not his bag at all. And was his, was his own character to be someone who was, you know, you said he's a great observer, did he see himself as being sort of on the margins of things? Well, in a sense, don't most novelists, if you spend all day writing, you are to some extent. Tony had an enormous range of friends whom he saw a lot, and so he was a very, very sociable person. So I don't, to that extent, he wasn't on the margins of things, was he? He wasn't... As one of the reviewers pointed out, he didn't make a success particularly of any... He was actually a very good literary editor of Punch. He started Punch doing book reviews. They hadn't done it before at all. He was remarkable in the range of books that he covered, and especially in the people he hired to do it. And he had a great bias in favour of young, unknown writers. 
most of whom went on to become extremely well-known. But, I mean, I think that speaks well. That's just when a writer needs help, when he's young and trying to earn a crust. You know, he was the first person to employ Kingsley Amis, the first person to employ Lydia Naipaul, V.S. Naipaul, and various other people who could... Yes, I remember Andrew Wilson saying actually he was very kind to him as a young man. Yes. So I think he was a good literary editor, but it wasn't his passion. I can't remember how long he did it for, but he didn't, didn't move on to do that anywhere else. He didn't make a success of trying to make film scripts for Hollywood, but then, again, you know, that's not really... <laughs> he would have been a much richer man if he could have, but he certainly wouldn't have written The Dance of the Music of Time. What else did he try? Oh, he worked for a publisher for a while. It was a real, practically down-the-tubes publisher called Duckworth, run by a man called Duckworth, who absolutely loathed books and got to hate them more and more ferociously <laughs> with time. So, you know, it wasn't that wasn't the best introduction to publishing. But again, Tony launched, or tried to launch, a lot of his contemporaries. He was a very close friend of Evelyn War, long before either of them had written a word, when War was, as it were, brooding on the book that became Decline and Fall. He used to read bits of it aloud to Tony. And Tony, of course, wanted to publish it, and could have done, would have done, except that the editor above him at Duckworth absolutely refused and so you know again and again the contemporaries whom Tony suggested publishing would have been a brilliant thing for a publisher in 10 years time when they began to make their name and were turned down by Duckworth <laughs> itself so you see that wasn't the happiest of experiences. Yeah. How did he kind of approach dance I mean you talk about the sort of idea for this big book coming I mean, did he know it was going to be as big as it was and did he have a sort of picture for the whole No, absolutely not. I should think he would have been amazed if you'd told him it's going on for 12 volumes. What happened was he published five separate novels before the war, and then the war, you know, in his case, it took him into almost into his his 40s, the years in which, if it hadn't been for the war, he would have been producing his best work. So he, like everybody of his generation, felt after the war that there prime had, as it were, been been swallowed. You know, there was no more time to waste. And what he thought he'd do, I think he knew by then that there was nothing he wanted to do but be a novelist, and indeed, of course, he was a novelist. But he decided, it's a kind of economy measure, that once you've invented a whole set of characters, you set them moving, you um, write your book about them, and then they're finished. You've got to invent a fresh lot, he decided and it would be better, to retain the same lot and continue with them, which, of course, you know, is perfectly logical, isn't it? So he was going to write, he thought, two, three volumes, and it wasn't very clear how many, but certainly he envisaged it as larger than one. There are 12 books in the Music of Time, and they are very short, actually. I worked out once that wordage, the wordage, is pretty much the same as War and Peace. One or other of them is slightly longer, I can't remember which, but... Basically, it's if you think of it as a long About Russian a novel, <laughs> well, that too takes a certain amount of commitment, doesn't it, to read. But it's easier to pick up and put down the music of time because it's divided into these very short books. So he knew that, and after three volumes it was clear that he hadn't by any means finished what he had to say, so then there was another three, and then he realised uh, the war was coming up and that would take at least three, and after the war, well, you know, he had to settle things down and um, carry on up to the present, and that would take another three. So that's how it happened, it just kept growing. And as for, I always think with a book... When you've read a book and you can't exactly remember what happened in it, but you were very impressed by it and it does remain with you. I mean, there are some books that do with rain with you a lot of your life. What you actually remember is a kind of essence, almost a flavour of that book. And I feel that the flavour was with him from the beginning. Perhaps that is so, but 
probably is true of all successful novels, that he roughly knew the kind of impact, the essence that he wanted to try to grasp, and it just took him much longer and into some very strange places indeed <laughs> in the course of the writing. Was he was he one of those kind of Ian Forsterish writers who say their characters push them about, or was he of the sort of Nabokov, you know, my characters are galley slaves <laughs> type? I wouldn't have said either. I think his characters grow, you know, organically, pretty much. Some don't. Some remain very peripheral and minor characters or are only brought in in peripheral or minor roles. And those are the ones that are, funnily enough, always closer to life. You know, there are one or two cases of very small characters who only appear briefly, who are actually fairly close to whoever they may or may not have been based on. The major characters, of course, as with all great novelists, their sources are composite. You can take a bit of somebody, a bit of so-and-so, but those are only starting points. From that grows a character who has his own life. So to that extent, he's your first category. He was kind of exasperated, wasn't he, by all the Widmerpool spotting that went on throughout <laughs> you? Well, I think he found Widmerpool quite a surprise too. Widmerpool, who is the character of all Pearl's characters, who's passed into folklore, I think. There are many people have met Widmerpools and know precisely what Widmerpool stands for, which basically is the pursuit of power for its own sake. And, you know, almost everyone has somebody like that in their life. Widmerpool enters as a, a schoolboy at Contemporary of the Narrator. And I, I don't think anybody, and certainly not the narrator, had any idea how he would actually dominate the imagination of Pearl's readers. He seems with him to pin down, don't you think, some absolutely well, essence of particular way of behaving. I mean, he, he embodies it quite extraordinarily. Like, say, I suppose, Sherlock Holmes, Falstaff, these two are creatures of folklore, it's aren't they now? Yeah. As well as they exist on pages. But there's that sense, I, I suppose, which, you know, people say that Pearl's like life because characters appear and disappear, or, you know, one character suddenly takes mm. on this extraordinary mm. life of his own and, and sort of starts to fill the book. Well, I mean, interesting how... You think the book sounds, I mean, you know, you describe in the book how Pole, you know, he's at school, I think, when, you know, the wasteland comes out and sort of it's modernism is mm. sort of exploding suddenly. Mm. And I think the sort of image of dance is as quite a sort of trad thing, you know, a sort of realist work. It's a kind of comic novel, it's a fleuve. But how does it stand in relation to those kind of literary upheavals, do you think? I mean, is it in I some think ways more experimental than it looks? Actually, yes, I absolutely agree with you there. I think it's very deceptively traditional in that it does use a traditional format. It has a beginning, middle and end to each volume and to the whole section. I mean, I think music is really an easier analogy for trying to understand it. It falls into movement, certainly. I think that the rhythm, especially of his dialogue, is both extremely realistic and very musical. I mean, you, you can quote whole exchanges between two people and they rise and fall. Well, for me, that's a very helpful way of thinking about it, more than... I think its structure is terrific. It's one of its great glories. But the structure is only there, of course, to support and express what it was that he had to express about human beings. And I don't think anyone else had quite ever said the same or tried to say the same. I think it is actually a radically innovative book and I think that might, may explain why, to some extent, after he died, its importance has been played down until, I mean, the same has been true always of all radical innovators, of Picasso, of Matisse, of, you know, all the great modern artists and the great modern writers. And I, obviously, 
Tony isn't a great modern writer because he's of the wrong generation if we're talking about modernism. But he is a radically innovative writer, I think. I don't think anyone has has used that method before of capturing people over that time span from those many, many different directions as he comes at them. There are quite a lot of coincidences in the music of time, and when I was young, I, in common with a whole lot of many other readers, thought this was rather exaggerated and most unlike life. But as you get older, <laughs> now that I know so many people, my life is punctuated with weird coincidences. I think it's just the way people interact, you know. One can be very surprised. Can you talk a bit about your own encounter with him? Because you were, I mean, it's quite a while back now that you were sort of, as it were, anointed to write this biography. Can you describe how you got to know Tony himself? I mean, you said as a young woman you read dance and you said it changed your life in the book. I read him at university and didn't like it at all. I thought, like all Tony's Pearl's detractors, my gosh, my life is boring enough already without reading this stuff. But I tried it again because so many people I knew thought he was terrific about, I don't know, four or five years later and immediately got my ear in and it just clicked and... I thought he was terrific, and I think so still, and I waited impatiently for each volume to come out, as they did. I must have been about halfway through. When I, I think I started with Casanova's Chinese Restaurant. I liked the title, and when I read it, I liked the book. And then I caught up on the earlier volumes and read each subsequent volume as it came out. So you don't have to start at the beginning? No, you don't. And in some ways, <laughs> the thing is, he starts at the beginning. The narrator has been sent to a public school when he comes down, he goes to London. The only girls he knows are the sisters of boys he was at school with, a very common problem if you live in London and don't come from there. And so he goes to debutant dances, which he finds it impossible to make any headway with, and he's totally unsuitable character because, you know, he doesn't belong to those circles. And then the first two or three novels, especially the second and third, are chronicle his escape from that world and the immense relief that he felt when he got away from it and, and actually discovered and became part of the really very rackety and immensely diverse world of, of, of writers and artists which to which he belonged for the rest of his life. So, you know, it is a weird misconception of Pearl that he was actually and remained a toff, but it's the myth that has grown up around him and I don't know if one can dispel a myth I've, I've given it a good try we shall have to see why do you think I mean why do you think that myth some of it seems to peg on his interest in genealogy I mean why was he That's so interested in genealogy too. well because I, I think I mean this is my explanation and he was passionately interested in genealogy because he really had no family his father was an army officer he was an only child he and his mother followed his father round from camp to camp you know training camp staff, all those places. A common military brat Exactly. But they had no other base. They never had a house. He always lived out of suitcases. There's a letter from him, him when he was at boarding school to his mother saying, we'll be interested to see where we'll be this holidays. You know, he didn't even know which country he'd been, let alone which boarding house or, or lodgings or digs they would be in. So he didn't come from anywhere. He had nowhere that he lived. His mother had two sisters, but oh, goodness, one of them led very rackety life, the other one died. So there was nothing much going on there. His father had a sister whom they almost never saw. So Tony had no relations. His grandparents, one of them was already, one side was already dead and the other side, his grandmother on his father's mother, 
took one look at him, sent for him when he was 11 to see what she thought and thought he was an absolute disaster. She said, children anyway, make me look so old. So she never saw him again. You know, she completely raised him up. So he had no relation, no, no uncles, no aunts, no grandparents, just no a sort of psychological base. need rather than a kind of social I think, affectation. Uh, well, that's how yeah. I explain it to myself. He just was able to connect his himself, well, I mean his family, to give himself a family, to give himself roots and genealogy, after all. Go back as far as you're prepared to take it and gives you very wide and extraordinary roots. It isn't just him, it's not just anyone. I mean, everybody has very widely scattered roots. Once you start going back to your grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, you can, everybody is connected to the rest yes, of the human race. Who do you race. think you are is very popular on the telly. I think <laughs> that's what it was for him. He just felt this is the one way in which he could actually be connected because he was very lonely until he went to boarding school. He didn't know anybody. His mother wasn't good at making friends. Yes, you know, he never could have friends he played with in the holidays. When, well, he didn't go to boarding school till he was 10, I think, which was considered rather late. But up till then, he had very few contact with other children of his own age. He used to look at them and wish he did know them, but how could he? They didn't live next door to anybody. You know, there aren't children in army camps. So. In late life, you talk, I mean, you know, to return to this thing, there's a sort of the later image of Pole that seems to have overcome him. I mean, there seems to be a sort of sense in which, you know, that sort of slightly admonitory phrase in Orton on Yates, you know, he became his admirers, that there's a sort of canonisation of him. I mean, you talk about this bust. Oh, that was my fault. I commissioned the bust. And you commissioned I, the bust. Yes, yeah. and I know it turned out to be a terrible mistake and a terrific stick to beat him with. It was because of his visual imagination. You know, I like paintings too, and sculptors, and I should think, I mean, I've been a writer all my life, I know a lot of writers, of course, but I know almost as many painters and sculptors. That's just the way my life turned out. So Pearl has a lot of busts, very um, third or, you could say, fifth rate, just busts picked up in junk shops. But he liked them. I mean, they're human heads, you know. They are of interest too, even if they are made of stone. So that's what he had. They're a fairly ramshackle collection. And because I had a friend actually an abstract sculptor. Most of my friends, of course, were abstract artists because that's how it was. And for me, that is the most intense form of art. But, you know, I understand and respond to all kinds of other art. Anyway, he made two or three busts and I thought this would be good. He could make a bust, add to the collection at the Chantry, and then there'd be a, you know, and it is, in fact, it's, it's by William Pye, a very well-known abstract artist, mostly a water artist, made, does, has done extraordinary things in water, and has made, I should think, half a dozen busts, and one of them is Anthony Pearl, and they are amazingly like. Well, this it, one is... Because this is the one that was in the lobby of the Telegraph in Canada Square. That's right, the Telegraph yes. paid for it, actually. Tony, well, I couldn't pay for it. Tony was their lead fiction reviewer for something like 50 years. So... <laughs> Mm, that was a generous gesture, but I had absolutely no idea the way it would redound in his disfavour. And I do think you can discount him. It wasn't his fault that I had this rather brilliant idea. It's because <laughs> I liked William Pye as an artist. I liked the busts he make, and I thought, anyway, there we are. And you were very, you became very friendly with Paul, and you you just say in the book that you didn't feel you could write this book. No, for I a put long it time. off for a very long time. Everybody thinks, or many people have said to me, what a great help it must be to have known the person you're writing about. On the contrary, it's the exact opposite, or it was for me. Because writing biography is a fairly ruthless process, and it's difficult to subject someone who you're fond of, as I certainly was of him, to that process. And you have no control, of course, over what you may or may not discover. So I found that 
I really didn't want to do it. I, I really didn't want to. So I put it off for a long time. I mean, that's my fault. It was my problem. And I did get over it. And I have now written about him. But, of course, I can't say. What caused you to, to decide it had been long enough? Or did you feel you owed it to his shade? Or what was the... Well, he did ask me ages ago to do it. And I said, yes, gaily. And the way you do when you're young, you accept, you agree to do all sorts of things, which you'd much better <laughs> not have done. I think, actually, it was very useful to... Anthony Polo wasn't at all keen to have a biography, but had been his publisher, of course, all publishers do, insisted that he should. So it was a very good idea to choose someone who certainly wasn't going to do anything for absolutely ages, if ever. And it meant he could discourage other biographers on the grounds that officially there was, you know, and I didn't what like coming? that role at all. And wrote to at least one potential biographer saying, please don't think I'm standing in your way because, you know, that is absolutely not the role that I wanted to play. He tried to talk you out of writing your Matisse book as well, didn't he? He didn't try, but he didn't approve. He was because he was a Picasso man himself and I'm very much a Matisse man. But, you know, I often think Matisse and Picasso are obviously two great, perhaps the two great artists, painters of the Western world of their own, in their lifetimes, 20th century. They're very, very different. Picasso in his lifetime, certainly towards the end of his lifetime, had a terrific edge on Matisse, and after Matisse died, Matisse was written off. I must say, in very much the way Pohl has been, not specifically as a toff, but as boring, as conservative, as completely uninteresting, as, yes, interested really only in money. I wrote Matisse's life too, and I... I found this myth very, very hard to believe. I knew nothing about Matisse as a person, and I didn't even at that stage know his paintings very well. So when it was proposed to me to write a life of Matisse, I thought, astounding, he must be the last of the great figures of the 20th century, generally recognised great figures of the 20th century, never to have had a biography. And I asked the three leading Matisse experts in London, in Paris and New York if it was true. And the first to reply was the man in London, John Golding, I had a mutual friend, at least I knew a painter who knew him, so he asked him for me, and the answer came back, yes, tell her there's never been a biography of Matisse, and it's because his life would be too dull to write about. And I thought, right, you're the Matisse expert, but I'm a biographer, and I just cannot believe that, that a man who produced works of such power and strangeness, mystery, really. Anyway, I actually turned out to be right, and I think that compared to... Matisse's life, Picasso's, looks like a picnic. Matisse was a drama-a-day man. He's seriously, yeah. Picker up of unconsidered trifles. <laughs> exactly. Had troubles not necessarily of his own making, whereas, as far as I could see, all Picasso's troubles were always... They were all to do with the girls he picked. Anyway, I, mention, I bring that in because Picasso and Matisse are very, very different as people, very, very different as painters, and each was, in a sense, the great good luck of the other because each spurred the other to jump higher and to do more difficult things. There's war the Picasso in this scenario. Yeah, I think so, don't you? I mean, also a terrific writer, but a satirist. And Tony took a lot of flack early on as being a rather second-rate war. Well, Tony is certainly a very funny writer, is quite capable of writing satire, but that wasn't really what interested him. He wanted to to grasp what people are like, not to make fun of them. And that is the difference between the two, and I think each was brilliant at what he did. Now, I just briefly want to ask, as Coda, speaking of ruthlessness and trouble, there's sometimes V.S. Naipaul kind of turned on yes. Tony Pollard, and you've sort of called him out on it in this rather heroic way. Well... What was, what, what was behind that? What happened? 
It's very difficult to explain. Naipaul was uh, discovered by Tony very early on. He published his first novel here. It didn't make a great impact. Tony was then literator of Punch and read it and thought it was remarkable and took the trouble to contact the author, writer, and ask him if he'd like some books to review. Well, Naipaul was actually penniless at the time and finding it very hard to, well, to just, you know, keep a roof over his head. I mean, they met, they had lunch, they got on well. And Tony fixed him up with the fiction column on the New, on the new Statesman, which was an absolute lifesaver for Naipaul. I mean, there is a letter from Naipaul to Tony saying it's a lifesaver. I don't know what how I could have survived without this. And Tony liked his novels as they came out, read them, got good people to review them or reviewed them himself. So, I mean, this is a very common relationship between someone in your position, Sam, if I may say so, that said it's able to hand out work and starving young writers whom you, you think may well be going to go far or have it in them to go far. And Anyway, that is what happened. So these two got on very well. The two families met. They regularly lunched together. The Naipauls often came to had lunch at the Chantry, which was the Pearl's house in the country, not far from where the Naipauls were then living. And anyway, this went on perfectly well and friendly. And Naipaul wrote a wonderful review of, I think, The Acceptance World, Volume 3 of The Music of Time, a long piece. Really one of the best analyses of The Music of Time and why it's so good, both technically and from a literary point of view and from a human point of view. It's an extraordinarily subtle and touching piece really it, it's it's not just a tribute from a friend it's a real analysis of what he was doing and how it works the music of time brilliant and then after tony died somebody asked him to write about the music of time he realized he hadn't read it he hadn't read all of it well there's no obligation on writers even if they are friends to read all of each other's books and that understandable so he reread the books that he had read and he read a few more and he suddenly said, the scales fell from my eyes. I was absolutely appalled. I thought it was clumsy. I thought it was the characterization was driven, was shallow. And I think really what Naipaul was saying is these books aren't like my books. Or, I mean, and they certainly aren't. Both, I think, great writers. But Naipaul is very up and down, isn't he? Not all his novels are great novels. His early novels certainly are. And he wrote also amazing books about India and other places that he visited. I mean, he is a truly extraordinary writer. But this happened, what, 10 years after Pearl died? He wrote in his in his autobiography, memoir, he includes about five pages, is it longer, six pages, on Pearl saying what a rotten writer he is. Why he did that, I do not know. I can understand you can change your view of a fellow writer, but why do you need to put the boot in when the man has been dead for 10 years and hasn't really published anything for a very long time. Tony was very ill in the last years of his life and lived to a very great age, outlived virtually all his contemporaries. <sighs> I do not know. I can only imagine that there must have been an element of jealousy there. This is a very powerful work that Tony produced and the first people to recognise that were certainly his fellow novelists. All the attacks on him came, if you notice, from fellow novelists. Good place perhaps to end. Larry Sperling, thank you very much. 